everyone. Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. So I want to, oh, folks, we see a familiar face here, don't we? I want to welcome back Nathan Smith to the program. How you doing, dude? I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. So just a little introduction, uh, folks. Nathan Smith is a psychology student at uh, Texas State and uh, Texas State University, or is that? Okay. And uh, so he's, uh, of course, we all know he's done a few episodes with us. Uh, his story about PTSD on the mission field really touched a lot of people's lives. And then we kind of did a Mormonism and mental health series, which we got some good positive re uh, response from that as well. So we're doing a special episode series where uh, for those of you who are watching my program, you, you might've seen where I've been doing with Brent Ashworth, where I'm having him bring on an item that I have no idea what it is. And the audience finds out what it is when I find out, uh, of course, we're taping this. And we're going to do the same thing with a series of books that I asked him is it pick out three books or four books, whatever, that you think would be kind of like a good crossroads of where you're at, the philosophy, Mormonism, Christianity, where all that kind of intersection books that you think might be uh, good for my audience to read and ponder and consider. So Nathan, without further ado, uh, why don't you just uh, pull up that first book and let's start talking about it. Absolutely. Um, so the, the first book that I have in mind uh, for us today is uh, a book called The Wisdom of Insecurity okay. by a, a writer named Alan Watts. And Alan Watts was, he was a British American philosopher in like the mid 20th century. One of the, one of the big things that he was known for was he popularized a lot of Eastern thought in, uh, in the US and in the West in general. So, I mean, the, you go back to all the way to like the 19th century, there's like, you know, Buddhism in, in America still, but like he very much popularized or at least helped to popularize it for a lot of people. Interestingly, he actually began his training as an Anglican priest, if I remember correctly and just had to always had like an affinity for Zen. And so he would just write and publish a lot about it. And I think eventually he just kind of uh, departed from the priesthood where he was at and uh, went on to go be a practitioner of Zen and uh, a little bit of a mix of Taoism and the like as well. So uh, The Wisdom of Insecurity though, this was a really cool book. It was published in 1951. And I first encountered it in like 2015 or 16 when I was right off of my mission, in fact. Hmm. So this was uh, this was nice because I would I would always walk to the uh, BYU campus from my apartment when I was living in Provo. And I would just sit down in front of this uh, fountain and I would read this book. And I remember just it, it did a lot of uh, work for helping me sort of emotionally repair myself after the experiences that I had been through uh, as a missionary, in fact. So uh just to kind of go through a little bit of the content here of this book. And kind of my, my goal here is I wanna share some of the ideas that struck me the most, but it's not necessarily the whole book um, and maybe just enough to get people interested in reading it themselves. So Watts draws on, as you might imagine, a very Eastern perspective. One of the big themes of the wisdom of insecurity is that you know, you know nothing is unchanging, that uh, existence is always in flux, it's always moving. Um, this is a very like Buddhist concept, for instance, in Buddhism, they call it emptiness or nothing. And basically what that means is there's nothing at the foundation of anything. So like an object, like a rock, for instance, there's nothing at the foundation of that rock's existence that says it is a rock, like it, it is always a rock. It began as something that maybe it chipped off of a bigger rock. It'll turn to dust in, you know, thousands and thousands of years or the like. There's nothing that says that it can't change. There's no little kernel that will never change inside of it. Um, and it's the same with us. You know, we, 
I think everyone's sort of heard this, this idea that like every seven years or so, all the atoms in your body have sort of recirculated out. We can even look at cell death in the body that, uh, you know, like the, every one of your organs turns over its cells, even the brain until as recently as like the 1980s, people didn't realize that the neurons in your brain can die and then be replaced in a process called neuroplasticity, that the brain is constantly remapping itself. And in fact, that kind of leads to personality. I mean, if you think about who you are right now versus who you used to be 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or even longer, you're not at all that person either. So there's nothing about you, according to Watts, that is fundamentally unchanged, that isn't moving, isn't reshaping itself on some constant level. So according to Watts, when you live in a world that's just in constant change and constant fluctuation, um, it's, it's important to distinguish between what is and what we think or feel about what is. So for example, uh, our thoughts about things tend to convey a sort of changelessness to those things. So for example, when we look, again, when we look at a rock, we, we have some sort of definite idea about what it is. And there's this, this sense of um, solidity, of a static nature when we call it something. You know, we don't really think of its history. We don't think of its future. We just think that's what it is. And then it can kind of give us this illusion that that's what it always is and what it always will be. There's this, um, how do I put it? There's like a disjunction between the things that we assign to uh, what is and the things that actually are. Uh, there, there's a quote from Watts here that might do a little bit more of an explanation. He says, uh, quote, what we have forgotten is that thoughts and words are conventions and that it is fatal to take conventions too seriously. A convention is a social convenience as for example, money, but it's absurd to take money too seriously, to confuse it with real wealth. In somewhat the same way, thoughts, ideas, and words are coins for real things. So for example, it kind of goes back to, um, it kind of goes back to how you as an individual person are always constantly changing, whether it's on a cellular level, a psychological level, even a spiritual level. There's this sense though, in which we still label ourselves as like I, me, myself, as if we're this, this constant static object. And it's, um, there's this sense in which, at least as Watts puts it, if we lose ourselves in that language, or even in just kind of that purely cognitive way of interacting with the world, we can kind of give ourselves or we can lose ourselves in this sense that the world is somehow changeless or constant or static, which can create a lot of emotional distress when things do, you know, continue to change, sometimes mm. even violently change. Yes. Yeah, it's very interesting because like I sometimes when I think about this, like uh, I, I think about like the fundamentalist mindset. Mm. Now, I'm going to say fundamentalist, but I'm going to use that word carefully because I met Benjamin Schaefer, who's I call him a progressive fundamentalist, and he obviously has a very open mind. He's an intellectually very curious person. But generally speaking, fundamentalism um, basically insists that everything's unchanged. Like, for instance, their beliefs are unchanging, their their foundation is unchanging, uh, their God is unchangeable, uncha um, and they also believe that they're just trying to stay put firmly. They want to be firmly rooted in their position how does that is that person changing every seven years i mean like on a spiritual and psychological level or are they trying to i mean what if you're trying to fight it yeah 
Yeah, I well, I think most people do. And uh, Watts would certainly agree for sure. I think, I think, um, I think it's actually a sign of people who are what we might call pathologically dogmatic as well. Because I mean, again, we have Benjamin Schaefer, who, like you said, has has more of a progressive mindset. He's open to study. He's open to learning and even it seems unlearning previous ideas. He's he's more interested in understanding reality than he is, I think, in necessarily maintaining a set of ideas that never changes. So that was something I actually really appreciated with, uh, especially the first interview with Ben, was that uh, the, what I would distinguish, fund, the way that I would distinguish fundamentalism as, as personified by like Ben, and uh, what I would call pathological dogmatism, is that when it comes to being pathologically dogmatic, you're privileging your ideas about something as opposed to what Ben would describe, I think, as being fundamentalist, or at least progressively fundamentalist, which is that you're, you're privileging an unchanging truth, that there's some kind of reality beyond your mind, beyond yourself, that uh, is arguably unchanging, but your understanding of it can constantly change, can be layered, it can be progressive and uh, developmental. Mm. I, think that that's, um, I think that that's a very important distinction to make. So, like from the question of the Christian Western mindset, it's it is different than Eastern philosophy. And so, how how would you integrate these ideas? I mean, like we had talked discussed before, like I mentioned about you know, true religion is a right relationship with reality. There's kind of a Buddhist type kind of saying, which you agreed sounds a lot like Buddhism. But I like that. And so, in some sense, I've taken that concept and integrated it into my Christian mindset in my Western view. And, and I just wonder, is that an example of how one can maybe take something from uh, quote unquote, an alien tradition, if you will, and, and integrate it into uh, your worldview? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a fantastic point. Um, I think one of the things that for me personally, that's helped me is, is being a student of uh, various spiritual and religious traditions from, from India and Southeast Asia, as opposed to perhaps making my identity centered on them, which is not at all to disparage people who identify as Buddhist or Hindu or the like. Um, but for me, it's been very helpful to be able to distill principles that I feel I've been able to port into different cultural or even just personal contexts. Um, I think a really good example actually of how to bring Christian mindsets uh, and, and well, here's the thing, because I, I think that in order to, to distill principles that you can port into multiple contexts, you have to kind of get to what Thomas McConkie, uh, a, a former, I don't know if he's a currently a Latter-day Saint, he grew up a Latter-day Saint, he's, he's currently a meditation teacher in Salt Lake City, um, he calls it meta-lineage, so he's doing a series right now um, called Gospel Meets Dharma, where it brings sort of Buddhism and Christianity and their wisdom traditions into conversation with each other. And his goal is to find what he calls a meta lineage, um, what they have in common, what goes beyond their individual um, idiosyncrasies. And I think when you can identify those, that's when you sort of have the best points of contact and probably maybe even the most reliable principles, two different populations identifying the same kind of experience. Because, you know, for as, as, as different as we can be, we all live more or less on some level in the same world. So, you know, we find common principles. For me, um, I would say a really good common principle between like Eastern mindsets and Western mindsets, and that's a very broad term, obviously, uh, would be uh, faith, actually. And uh, I, I think in the West, we've sort of, we've sort of 
I think especially since the scientific revolution, we've sort of given up on the older concept of faith in favor of a more travestied version where faith for a lot of Westerners tends to be, I, I have this propositional truth. I make this claim about the universe and I don't have evidence for or against it, but faith is when you sort of insist upon the proposition regardless of, um, of, of what the actual argument might be. But I think that there's an older definition that might be related to that, but I think is somewhat different. Like, cause when you go back to the Hebrew, the word that's often translated faith is like emana, which means like community fidelity. Like it's your faithfulness to the people around you. Or in Greek, it's pistis, which um, you can actually, according to a philosopher named Giorgio Agamben in a really lovely book called The Time That Remains that was all about Paul, uh, he, he notes that you can actually find the word pistis on the fronts of banks in Greece. It means trust or fidelity. Um, there's a, a sense in which you are devoting yourself to something. Um, let me see here. I have, I have another quote from Watts actually that I think probably captures this sense of faith. He says, quote, I have always been fascinated by the law of re reversed effort. Sometimes I call it the backwards law. When you try to stay on the surface of the water, you sink. But when you try to sink, you float. When you hold your breath, you lose it, which immediately calls to mind an ancient and much neglected saying, whosoever would save his soul shall lose it. And elsewhere he says, belief clings, but faith lets go. And I think that that's a really, a really interesting distinction there. Cause I think we confuse the word faith with belief, at least how uh, Watts defines these two things where belief again is that insistence, but faith is whatever may be, I will entrust myself to it. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good good uh, distinction to make there. So just real quick about this Alan Watts person. I'm just curious, like, so he studied to go into the Roman Catholic priesthood. Did he did he get excommunicated? Did he have any well, he conflict? Was Anglican. Oh, I'm he sorry, was... Anglican, I apologize. No, that's um, right. uh, so, so of course, the Anglican, they probably wouldn't be as strict about then whether he, about it him. yeah okay yeah he, i was uh, just curious he would have a tremendous sense of humor about it i think from from what i've uh, heard of him and read of him he's a he's a bit of a goober all around but he's um he i think his his spiritual journey sort of took him not away from christianity but into a very different understanding of christianity than um i think many westerners would be familiar with Mm -hmm. So he he's written actually a couple books on Christianity, though, from his more Eastern perspective that uh, I would highly recommend. Uh, the titles right now specifically are escaping me. But if you go to like Wikipedia and look up his publication history, um, he has some really excellent books that'll be very obvious uh, titles. Like I think Christian Myth and Ritual is one of them, mm. um, but they're they're excellent. So if, if you'd like to have maybe a, a softer entry to Alan Watts or perhaps if you're more uncomfortable with, or if you have a, a viewer here that may be perhaps a little less comfortable with Eastern perspectives, explicitly Eastern perspectives, they may enjoy those books. I think they might help create um, a sense of familiarity and uh, a chance to gain insights without necessarily compromising their Christian identity. So would Alan Watts, is, is he still with us? No, he passed away, I think, in the 70s. Okay. So would he call himself a Christian towards the end? Or how, what, did he, what did he consider himself to be? Well, I, I got to say, again, he's a bit of a goober, I think. So I think he would maybe say he's a Christian uh, in the original sense of the term, but maybe <laughs> not. Uh, so for him, he, he did this, um, 
he did this wonderful lecture. I think it's like the true meaning of Christ or something like this, or Jesus's true message. He, uh, especially in, in, in that era, in the mid 20th century, he worked a lot with this concept that, um, that the difference between Jesus and his message now versus what many would label at least Christianity today is that we've shifted from the religion of Jesus to a religion about Jesus. And as Watts put it, we, we pedestalized him so much that we tucked him away in the attic and we said, there can be one son of God, but no more, none of that, none of that again, as opposed to say the gospel of John, where, you know, Jesus addresses the crowd and says, you know, does it not say that ye are gods? And uh, where the, the author seems to describe Jesus as the son of God who comes to make others sons of God, or in a, in a broader sense, of course, you know, sons or daughters or children of God in general. But there's this sense in which Jesus is experiencing God in a way that he seeks to open up to other people, as opposed to being this once and for all mediator who you are supposed to always be below. So, you know, one of the things I've, I've been kind of pondering, like, like talking to people like Benjamin Schaefer and other people from the restoration uh, on different Zoom calls and stuff like that. And it does seem to be that people from the restoration tradition, um, especially the community of Christ, but also even within um, the main LDS branch in Utah, is they have a tendency to be a little bit more open-minded to other religions and their beliefs. Uh, actually kind of even talks about one of your prophets talked about how we, we, wherever the truth comes from, wherever it's at, we're interested. So it seems like you guys are willing to engage other religions more so than evangelicals are, who are basically there to convert people. That's the whole point. You know, they want to convert the Buddhists. They want to convert the Hindu. Um, I was thinking about this the other day, and I was just, I wanted to toss this at you. Um, is it because of the belief of pre-existence that when you're engaging other religions. These other religions are kind of types or shadows or echoes of the pre-existence. And so that's why they feel that they could find truth there because they are bringing something to the table. Is that, is that something I think that- that's, I think that's absolutely an aspect of it. I think um, it's, it's, it's interesting because I didn't quite understand that aspect of Mormonism until I started researching like Eastern Orthodoxy. And we've, we've discussed mm -hmm. this briefly off camera before, but um, the, the concept in Eastern Orthodoxy that I've heard many commentators within that tradition uh, use is that everyone is born in the image of God or that they are created in the image of God in some way. And so it shouldn't be terribly surprising when God's image produces truths, regardless of, of whether or not they would identify themselves as Christians. Um, so I think there is a sense in which um, pre-existence does play a role in that in Mormon thought, or at least could. In, in Platonism, for instance, there's a, also a concept of pre-existence um, where they, I believe the term was um, anamnesis, anamnesis, where, where it would be this concept where when you're learning something, you're not learning something new, you're actually remembering something that you knew prior to being biologically born. I think another aspect of it too, though, would be, I think a lot of Latter-day Saints would appeal to this idea that um, drawing on like a very literal understanding of Adam, that uh, Adam possesses the true religion and then, you know, Adam and Eve propagate and they fill the world with human beings. And so the true religion sort of fragments and deviates, but there's still these, these fragments of truth. So yeah, yeah, when you, when you go all the way back to Joseph Smith, though, there is this notion that, um, that Mormonism is not so much 
what I think a lot of modern Latter-day Saints think of it as, where it's this diamond on a black satin, or, you know, it's a diamond tossed in mud. It's this beacon of light to people who live in nothing but darkness. And, and of course, that might be an unfair characterization for a lot of modern Latter-day Saints. So I do apologize if that's a caricature. But um, I think for Joseph Smith, he, he thought of Mormonism as a gathering together of things that already exist on Earth. Interesting. Yeah. So I... Um... I just was wondering, so uh, give us the name of the book one more time. Do you have a copy of the book in front of you? I, I don't. Okay. I have um, I have an ebook copy. Okay. I, yeah. Uh, the Wisdom of Insecurity by Alan Watts. And um, so when you, you read this first when you were in 2015, when you were a student at BYU, it mentioned, and did yeah. it, uh, how did it affect you at the time when you read it? At first, I didn't understand it, actually, because... Um, I, you know, growing up, growing up um, in a Christian tradition like Mormonism, um, a lot of our focus is on terms like eternity and uh, the changelessness of God. Um, but we also have these, you know, interesting concepts like eternal progression, like eternal progression, that this idea that development never really ceases in a being. So it was, it was a weird combination of thinking that there's so much in the universe that just never changes like what we might call a commandment or a law, for instance. I think many Latter-day Saints would consider commandments or laws to be very eternal, unchanging, solid structures. Um, but it, it was it was such a it was an interesting first introduction to uh, the fluctuation that characterizes life. That the only constant is change. That sort of thing. So, where where was your status of security at the time? What drew you to that book? Did you feel secure or insecure at the time when you picked up that book? Tremendously insecure. And is that why you got it? Yeah, I think so. I um I actually was first introduced to Alan Watts. I would watch uh, YouTube clips of like his his audio lectures and stuff. He he wrote a number of books, but he he did a number of audio lectures that are really fa fabulous. If you don't have time to maybe sit down and read an entire book, I would just try to find maybe a three or five minute clip on YouTube, see what you think of it. But um, I, I was listening to those and then I found his books and I, uh, I found that Wisdom of Insecurity was very popular. I guess a couple celebrities even endorsed it. I, I can't remember who, but uh, yeah, I, I was reading that at a time when my understanding of Mormonism had really been shaken. You know, as, as we discussed in my interview, so I won't I'll draw too, too long on this, but um, during my time as a missionary, you know, it really rocked my understanding of what the LDS church is, how it operates, uh, the leadership especially, but just the people in general. And um, I, I was in this state of, I guess, I guess you could call it cognitive dissonance. And uh, I think that, I think that Alan Watts, the biggest gift that he gave to me was that it is absolutely okay to be there. And in fact, it might be the point that the, 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 the reason that I ended up in cognitive dissonance was in large part because I was trying to hold on to some constant image of what the church should be or what the church is or what Latter-day Saints should be or what they are instead of embracing the reality and then making healthy choices for myself from there based on that reality. Well, interesting, man. Uh, thank you so much. This is fun. Um, I'm looking yeah. forward to the continuing uh, this series where you're just going to surprise me with whatever is book you're reading or you think our audience would find interesting uh, so wisdom of security by alan watts uh, check it out i'll leave a link uh, in the description uh, that will discuss it we'll also leave maybe a couple links about some of the other stuff we talked in today's episode so nathan smith uh, thanks for coming on to the program today
Thank you again for having me. It's always a pleasure, Steve. I just want to remind my audience to like and subscribe. Don't forget to hit the notification button to be informed when a new episode comes out and you have yourself a great day.